Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you're someone who's a decade or two out from your high school graduation, do you ever find yourself thinking that you're just not as happy as you were back then? Of course, all the positive thinking self-talk then kicks in. You think, well, maybe I actually wasn't that happy before. I do like my life better now. I like the independence I have. Yeah, yeah, I really like being an adult. Yet no matter the glass half full glow you try to put on things, you can't shake the feeling that your happiness has declined over the years. That at 30, you weren't as happy as you were at 20, and that at 40, you weren't as happy as you were when you were 30. Well, that feeling is more than a nostalgic hunch and is not unique to you. It's actually been borne out by hundreds of research papers and studies and shown to be a near universal experience. My guest today has authored many of those papers. His name is Dr. David Branchflower. He's a labor economist who not only studies data around money and jobs, but also around human happiness. Today on the show, David explains how happiness follows a U-shaped curve and starts declining around age 18 and continues to fall into midlife before picking back up again. And David shares the average age at which happiness hits its very lowest point. While it's not entirely clear why the U-shape of happiness occurs, we talk about some possible reasons behind it. And while the U-shape is consistent across the world, it can be lower or higher. And so we discuss how factors like gender, socioeconomic, and marital status, and having children affect happiness and whether it's possible to mitigate the dip. While the fact that it won't be until your mid-60s that you feel as happy as you were at age 18 might seem depressing, David argues that it's comforting to know that the feelings of declining happiness you experience as you approach midlife are normal. It will not only pass one day, but start moving in the other direction. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash happiness curve. David Blanchflower, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So you are a labor economist, but you've done a lot of research and writing about happiness over the lifespan of humans. How did an economist who specializes in labor end up researching human happiness? Well, one of the big things I've been interested in is work. Um, And I thought a lot about why do people work? They work because obviously it pays them money, but it actually makes people feel good. And very early on when I started working in labor economics, I was in the UK in the 1980s, and there was lots of unemployment as there was all around Europe. And there was a big question, was unemployment voluntary? Did people choose to do it because it made them happy? Or did they not choose to do it and they were forced to go and be unemployed? Was the was the, what's called Marx's army of the unemployed, was it a volunteer army or a conscript army? So I started to think of that for a really, really long time when basically discovered a, a really important fact, which is that undoubtedly on every piece of data you ever look at, unemployment makes people unhappy. There's no disputing that. It doesn't look that people choose to be unemployed. If you chose to be unemployed, why would you do that if it makes you unhappy? So I started to think about well-being. 
And then as time goes on, the economists are interested in utility. And I started to think, well, well, how could we measure people's well-being? And so that's kind of how I got there. But particularly, and I ended up being a central banker, and I was interested in inflation and unemployment, one of the big issues we see today. And the question I started to ask myself was, well, if you want to measure inflation and unemployment and their effects, you should look at, at well-being and happiness. So that's what I did and basically found that um, a one percentage point rise in unemployment makes people much more unhappy than a one percentage point rise in inflation. So the consequence, as we're seeing right now, the consequence of time to deal with inflation may well be something much worse. So I'm a labor economist. I care about work. I care about unemployment. And that's why I ended up working on well-being, happiness, unhappiness. Okay. So you, one of the things your, your research has shown is that over the lifespan of, of human happiness, there is this U-shaped curve. Can you walk us through happiness from young adulthood through elder years? Like, right. when, when does happiness start to fall? Right. It starts to fall, actually. I'm a professor. I teach at Dartmouth. I taught class yesterday. It's first class of the quarter. And these young folks, 18 years old in my freshman class, they're extremely happy. They're at college and they're young. And in any of the data that we see, that looks like a really happy time. And I, t- and I teach this class of, um, with them. I teach them about the U-shape in happiness. And I say to them, well, make best because it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse for quite a while. Eventually, it'll get better. But just so you understand, it seems to happen to everybody. And so we have a lot of evidence, millions of observations around the world from 150 countries across time periods and so on. And basically, what it appears is that happiness declines through midlife. There's a midlife crisis. And then, you know, late 40s or so on. And then things pick up through around um, age 65 or 70. And there's a lot of evidence that actually being happy is particularly good. In fact, at age 70, happy people live longer. So this is the this is what you see a decline and then a pickup. And the extent of that pickup varies by countries. In a place like Germany, it's more like a ski jump. But in most countries, including the United States, it's really like a, a U-shape. And, and just to finish it off, so a happiness is U-shaped in age. But if you think of unhappiness, it's just the flip. So the unhappiness curve is just the hump-shaped copy of the, of the U-shape. So it's an inverted U. So it looks like in the data, there's a life satisfaction decline, a happiness decline through midlife, which is astonishingly present in the data. And it's quite interesting. Quite a lot of psychologists try to pretend that it's not there, but it's blindingly obvious in the data. So like, okay, there's a midlife dip. Is there like an average age? Like where like, this is like the lowest, like I could be looking at my life and like, okay, when I hit this age. seems like a pretty good low point to you somewhere around there. And uh, as I say, I've written all sorts of papers and and can show it to you in in lots of different countries. The average across developed and developing countries, about 150 countries, is about 48 or so is a good good run. And the surprise, actually, is that the same thing is true in developing as well as developed countries. I'd expected there to be a big age difference, and the answer is there isn't. No, so yeah, that's interesting. So this isn't just a United States phenomenon. This happens across cultures. And cross countries. Uh, absolutely. It happens across cultures. And one of the big things is that over the years, we started to see surveys being run in lots of different countries to allow us to do these comparisons. So Gallup, 
Um, the, the polling organization includes questions about happiness in, in masses of countries, and many governments around the world include it in their in many of their surveys. In the UK, the, the, the survey called the Labour Force Survey, set up to calculate the unemployment rate, actually includes it. And surveys by the European Commission and the Japanese government and all sorts of places around the world include these kinds of questions. So we can track. We can track happiness amongst groups of people, and we can track happiness amongst the same per- from the same person as they age. When differences do appear, so generally there's going to be a U-shaped curve across countries, but are there differences? Like, does the the trough like happen at different times? Well, there's a bit of variation, but the surprising thing is how little variation there actually is. It looks like sort of deeply genetic. But actually, your listeners may well be surprised by the fact that, that actually a, survey, a study's been done amongst orangutans and chimpanzees. And they don't ask the orangutan, but they ask volunteers and their keepers and so on. And it appears that actually in the data, the same pattern is seen in, in great apes. So that maybe suggests there's something kind of deeply, deeply genetic going on. So apes have midlife crises too. Seems that that's the way. There's, as I say, there's an, a new paper, a paper by uh, a whole series of, of scientists, of, of, of biologists and scientists and economists who have, have got together and done this study of apes. So that suggests to you that you know, perhaps it's deeply there. And then that might suggest that's the reason why it doesn't vary much by country. But you think you ought, you ought to have expected that in a country that has very short life expectancy, much shorter than in the United States, that you would see something different. But the surprise is that you don't. But the great thing is, uh, I'm an empiricist, the great thing is you go look at the data and the data tells its story. And so that's the challenge around the world. We haven't expected this, but that's what we see. Are there differences between the sexes when it comes to the U-shaped curve of happiness? Not really. There's, there's much expectation that there really that there would be. There isn't, but the more recent work, I've just done a new paper out in the last couple of days called The Female Happiness Paradox. It is true that there's a U-shape in age, but it certainly appears if you think of where it is, it turns out that on average females are less happy than men. So you might think that the, the function is a little higher for men than it is for women. Just think of two two U-shaped, one slightly above the other. So it does appear that women are less happy than men, but they have a U-shape as well. And the bottom of it is about the same place as it is for men. And one thing your your paper talked about is that, so while there is a U-shape in in unhappiness, it's shifted over time. Like like I think the the paper suggested that women were happier maybe a generation ago compared to women today. Is that correct? Did I read that right? Well, yeah, we, well, this, the latest work we've been doing sort of, it makes it rather less clear. I mean, there certainly was evidence in the past, um, some evidence in data, some researchers have suggested that, that in the past women were, were, were happier than men and actually were healthier than men. But I think over time, what you've observed is women become, have become more equal. They've gone to work and they've actually had taken on some of the characters and some of the traits, if you like, that men have because they've gone to work. But it appears that today the evidence is much clearer that women are less happy than men. There was some evidence in the past that the reverse was true. What's it particularly happened is that the pandemic especially um, hit women who were really, really hit very hard by the by the pandemic and the lockdowns in March and April, particularly 2020. They they somewhat recovered, but that seems to have been a really big deal. But there is some evidence, and we don't quite understand why, that those patterns were starting to emerge in 2018, 2019. 
perhaps you know we, we don't we have a great story for it but but now but the, the pandemic has really if you like put the tin hat on it and the evidence we have is for now anyway that women are, are less happy than men on it on almost every measure and, and there's no contradiction it turns out at all when you look at measures of unhappiness so over time if you look at measures of you know stress and depression and pain these are all things that that women experience more than men the contradiction a little bit is when you ask them about their happiness levels but but unhappiness is clearly it's clearly something that women report they're more anxious and worried uh, and so on than men the, 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 the little bit of contradiction is when you ask about happiness but it's pretty absolutely clear cut in unhappiness Okay, so men and women will hit that midlife trough at this about the same yep. age, but yep. it's just men will probably be like less unhappy than women at that period. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I, I, so. We're thinking about the to think of two two U shapes. Just take these two U shapes and say, what are, do they look similar to each other? Yup. Is the bottom at about the same age? Yup. Is one is one of these curves slightly above the other? The answer is yes. The male line is a bit above the female line, especially now. As I say, with the pressures that came from from lockdown, from remote working, from having to look after children, uh, women particularly worried about the finances and other things. So the answer to that is yes. The patterns were clear, but they're much clearer today, and particularly with what's happened in the last couple of years. How does education influence this happiness curve? Well, education. I mean, there's a similar story here, which is that happiness is is as I say, U-shaped in age. But it turns out that there's a big pattern in the data, which is particular groups that are particularly unhappy and have particularly high unhappiness levels are less educated prime age. We used to think it was men, but it's men and women. So less educated prime age in America who've seen their good jobs disappear. I have a book called Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? And the problem there is that we've seen a big rise in what I'll call morbidity and mortality. So that group, particularly the less educated in America, especially, have been impacted by it. And famously, Anne Case and, uh, and Angus Deaton have written about what they call deaths of despair. Uh, and what we've seen is a big rise in deaths from o- drug overdoses, suicide, um, and, and cirrhosis of the liver. I mean, these are, we're talking of a hundred thousand. We're not talking a million or so, as we've seen in COVID. But so the. In, in a sense, the, this, this midlife crisis and, uh, has particularly impacted um, the prime age, less educated whites, in fact, more than, more than anything else, uh, and Native Americans, and I've written something about that. So, so this is really important because in some ways you might connect this unhappiness of these po- folks uh, to their poor performance in the labor market, and you see this around the world. Okay, so low education, low employment uh, prospects, that's yes. going to make you even more. And I think, yeah, the research showed, which is surprising. We typically think of like deaths of despair, like suicide as like a young person's thing. Yeah. But- it's, yeah. It's this, I mean, this is really particularly surprising. And if you look at things like death from cocaine use, death, death from heroin, all these overdoses, as I say, and, and cirrhosis of the liver and suicide. I mean, the, the patterns in the data, you might think that this is, uh, you know, these are young person. Turns out that's not true. We're talking of the, the mid-age, the, if you like, the, the high points of these are exactly as we've talked about. They're in midlife. So the high points of opioid deaths, deaths, as I say, from cocaine and from any of these opioids we've talked about, those happen to be in midlife. So that's a consistent pattern in the data. Hard for those who want to argue that there is no life, life 
if you like, midlife crisis in the happiness data, when there's when there's clearly evidence of, of objective evidence from the real world, it's that, as I said, that suicides and so on peak in midlife. Something else that peaks in midlife actually is the taking of antidepressants. So we have work showing there's another way of objectively looking at at these patterns. Half of people to argue there isn't a midlife crisis when there's quite clearly a midlife crisis in observed things like death. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. What about marital status? How does that affect the the curve? Well, marital status is a little bit difficult. It It has a degree of impact. It has more impact on the shape of this curve in the United States than elsewhere not least for two things, which is that in the mid-20s, young Americans marry more than most other European countries and advanced countries. But by the age of 35, they divorce more. So there's, there's, there's a reality at the beginning, which is it has an impact on, on happiness. But both the married and unmarried, there is still a midlife crisis. The path, the path of the data before that is a little strange because people think, oh, great, I'm going to get married. This is great. And, but then it doesn't work out. But, but we find both the married and unmarried that there is still a midlife crisis. And the, but the pattern is a little more, a little different in the United States, I'd say, not least because the proportion of people who marry in their 20s is higher in the United States than elsewhere. But, I, but I've written about that. I think one thing I read, correct me if I'm wrong, in one of your papers talks about marital status. As you get older, if you're married when you're older, like your your happiness will be, you'll be happier than people who are single. Like everyone's going to experience yeah. that uptick. But if you're well, married, you'll, might, you'll probably yes. be a little bit well, happier. One of, yeah, one of the things that, well, there's actually a couple of interesting things. Yeah, married people tend to be happier than uh, unmarried people. They're happier than divorced and separated widowed people. One of the things that actually is also relevant, new work has just been done about people over the age of 70. And there's two things to, to note. Happy people live longer, but two big things happen in later life. The first is that ill health, particularly in the last three years of life, has a big impact on people's happiness. But one of the other things is that in later life, so I think after the age of 70, the death of a spouse actually has very big negative effects on the well-being of the other spouse. So marital status has an impact, but obviously when you're tied together, this is this has a negative effect on your happiness, when, particularly, as I say, in later life when a spouse dies. So marital status is good, but you're then tied to the spouse, uh, and that has implications later. But what about children? Have you looked at that? Like if you yeah. have kids? <laughs> yeah, I've done lots of these. I've got so many papers I've worked on. So we worked on 
we have a paper with my colleague uh, uh, Andrew Clark, and we we were intrigued by the fact that in the data it looks like children made people unhappy, and we both have kids, and it never really made any sense to me. In the sense that you might think you had one kid, and if that made you that made you unhappy, why would you have more? <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. So it turns out that we've now basically worked that out, and the answer is as follows. Young kids make you um, make you happy. So toddlers, two-year-olds, three, and I have, I have seven grandkids, and they're all under five, and they're all wonderful. But it's slightly different with grandkids. But anyway, let me keep going. So, so kids under five in the data just undoubtedly make people happy. But in the raw data, it looks like people, kids between the age of about five and eighteen, in the raw data, don't make you happy. That doesn't seem to make any sense. What we discovered is that. Once you control for the cost of kids, so the big thing is you've got a 15-year-old, you've got they're expensive. So it turns out um, once you control for the fact that um, they, it generates a, a cost and it generates difficulty in paying your bills, once you control for that, turns out kids make you happy. Older kids might not make you quite as happy as young kids, but kids make you happy, and that makes sense. I mean, a lot of this stuff is for listeners is, does this make sense to you? And as I said, I, I have three kids. Why would I have had three kids if the first one made me unhappy, the second one made me unhappy? Well, that's by accident, but it wasn't an accident. And I think the answer is that children, it, it's hard to kind of work it out, but it turns out that having teenagers is expensive. And once you control for the fact that it's expensive and it, you know, it's a trouble to your finances, then, then kids make you happy, which makes sense. Well, and also what happens like when you have a teenager, you're typically approaching that 47, 48. Right. Age. So right. have you been able to separate that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah, you at the same time you're these processes are going on, there's pressures on marriages and so on. I mean, having having teenagers, I remember tough days, tough, tough times. But as you say, the two things sort of interact together, and then you're getting to the to this midlife period. And and a lot of the time, and people ask me, I assume you're gonna ask me, well, then what? What do you say to people? And I always say to people at the low point. Well, the great thing about this research is, A, you're not unique. It's not unique to you. And B, it's going to get better. <laughs> that, that, I think, is the positive bit of this work. Yeah, and it seems like you know, part of the reason you know, once you hit that midlife trough, things start getting better is that people, you just start accepting that your life is what it is, right? And you stop regretting what could have been and you just move on. Well, the reality is that people are becoming more realistic in their aspirations. They understand that, you know, maybe they wanted to be a top 10 golfer, but that's not what they could do. And they ended up ha having a career doing something else and they became realistic and, and their life got kind of better. And perhaps it's to do with the fact that their income rose over time and eventually they were, they would become, but I think a lot of it's about becoming realistic. Okay, so it sounds like if part of the reason we get happier after that midlife dip is that we become more realistic, then the flip side of that points to why this happens, like why the midlife dip happens in the first place. So, okay, so part of it's you know genetic because it also happens to primates as well. But it sounds like it also happens because you know this midlife dip happens because we start running into our unmet expectations, right? Like you start feeling regret that your life didn't turn out the way you thought it would be when you were 20 years old. Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of that. But I think you then get to the point of going, well, actually, it's not that bad. I think it's, I mean, there are there are positives coming forward. I've done, I've done, I mean, there are unmet expectations. 
And yes, you haven't become a Supreme Court justice, but but actually being realistic, you, you it may life may be actually better than you think. And and in fact, you can the kids are going to go off to college. And one of the big things I always remember is the kids going off to college. And what are you doing in the first in the last year or so? You're fighting and arguing with your kids. In a sense, you're preparing them to leave, making them want to leave, and you're being prepared for them to leave. And and then you move into a, a, other parts of your life. But I mean, there's evidence about you know, people becoming disabled and you ask people, you know, what, what what happens if you're a football player and you can no longer play football, you have a knee injury and you say the whole of my life is football and then you discover later that actually there are other things that you can do. You can play pickleball, you can play golf, you can surf, you can do all sorts of things and people suddenly realise that that there's, that there's other things to life. Remembering that some people don't do that. Some people do get in that midlife crisis and and you know they don't survive it, and we're talking of a hundred thousand people a year who are, you know, in that sort of particularly in, in that sort of situation. But, but I think it, the answer is reality comes. I mean, the surprise, in a sense, we haven't focused on it is in a U shape. We've talked about the drop from youth to midlife, but then then really the the focus has to be then from midlife to age seventy, this thing picks back up again. And so that, that's sort of what we have to kind of think about. Things are going to get better. Reality is going to set in. And I think, I think the answer is, look at my own life, I think I became realistic. The grass on the other side was not quite as green as I thought. I'm sure someone's listening to this and thinking, okay, 47, 48, I'm going to hit this low point. I'm 70. See, so okay. I'm, you know, I'm <laughs> but I'm sure there's like someone who's like you know, 35 listening. He's like, I want to avoid that dip. Do you have a hunch whether it's possible to avoid the dip by doing certain things? Like, okay, I'm going to optimize well, my life. I'm the wrong person really to ask that other than as an individual. I mean, there are all sorts of things about friends. I mean, I, let me, well, I'll say this. Psychologists are, are actually good at this stuff. But as an economist, what I, what I basically discovered was that, I mean, economists care about money things. So a lot of the stuff I've tried to think about is, well, how much money buys you happiness? Well, more money do things. But what we discovered was that lots of other things have, have, have really very high happiness value. So, li- so living in a safe place, having friends, having a dog, going to the cinema, going to the theatre, going to, to see art music, going to go to an art museum. So these kinds of things where, I mean, I guess, you, I guess the story is it takes a village the surprise, in a way, is that you know a, a marriage has a very big positive in in money terms. If you try to put these things in money terms, these sorts of things have very high value, and so I think people learn to. I mean, they go to they go to knitting groups and sewing groups and chess groups and book clubs. Those kinds of things appear to be bonding, and they appear to have much greater value than an economist would have thought. And money doesn't buy as much happiness as you might have imagined. So maybe life's about that. You haven't made as much money. But the reality is that one of the big stories is that relative things matter. Yes, you compare yourself to others. But having a bigger car, having a big fancy BMW may look great at the beginning. But every day you take it shopping. You have to go to the store just like someone who drives a little car. And you become realistic and you look at other things. And then so, so I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm a guy who looks at the data psychologists there's a huge industry and people talking about how to be happy and what to do but but i'm an economist who looks at the data i'm the fact guy not the fact not the fact guy i mean the fact guy 
Uh, so you've given some insights, some advice on what you can do as an individual, knowing that you're going to have this happiness dip as you approach middle age. I mean, there's things you can do to mitigate it, have friends, mm. go visit art museums, have interests, uh, but also just kind of manage expectations. Like just, it, it's going to happen. Manage expectations. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is that I, I, I like the fact of saying to people, this is just normal. This is what happens to people. This is something that happens and it's going to pass. It's going to pass. Just understand it's going to pass. There are things that you can do to help talk to talk to people, go to therapy, all sorts of things. But ultimately, I think the focus, in a way, with our discussion has been about is happiness declines from, from youth to middle age as you try and find your way and decide what you want to do. But eventually, other people have been in this situation, lots of other people are in this situation, and boy, it's going to get better. That, I think, is the thing that I would say. Now, a psychologist might explain why that is. But that, that's what I say to people. Hope is not lost each year from now. But those who are you know, 47, 46, life might seem pretty bleak and grim, but it's going to get better. Well, you're a labor economist, so I imagine you want your research to influence public policy. And this is a, yes. an issue on the public policy level because you said like 100,000 people are dying yeah. a year yeah. because he's from these uh, deaths yeah. of despair. How do you think this information can influence public policy? Well, I think it's really, really important to try and think about the well-being. Well, I talk about the, the well-being. I mean, in Britain, I talk about the well-being of the man or woman on the Clapham omnibus. I mean, I'll translate. You care about the well-being of those, particularly in this world, at the low end, with rising inequality, public policy to try to do things about poverty, and jobs. So my book I wrote is called, as I said, basically about what happened to the good jobs. Where did all the where did all the good jobs go to? Where have all the good jobs gone? The answer is that the evidence appears to be that people respond to work. They like work. They like they like to do it. So the provision of well-paid, decent jobs is particularly important. And we've seen that in the pandemic. We've seen that people have now been choosy. They, they're choosing jobs that they want to go to. The provision of a good job raises well-being. Inability to work is a big deal. And think about the people I've talked about, the less educated blue-collar worker compared to, let's say, their father and their grandfather, their standard of living is not as high. So the answer is that we, in, in, in a sense, to this issue of, of despair and distress, we have to do something about those who have been left behind. We have to do something about provision of health care, programs to help people get off these drugs. We have to try and do something about those most impacted and provide, uh, provide ways of helping people in their midlives. But the answer, I think, increasingly, we've learned it during the break pandemic, is that, in a sense, you, we, we've got to help people. Uh, and the provision of the provision of furlough schemes and and help through this crisis perhaps is indicative of that because this has been a really big shock to people's well-being. So helping people and adjusting them, but also giving incentives for firms to hire people looks like a really big deal because um, Case and Deaton and I take the same view that much of this distress that we've seen is driven by the labour market jobs, and we, we simply haven't delivered enough jobs. Of, of a quality for those at the low end. And that seems like a big policy prescription. Well, David, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Yes, we can link to it. There's a whole, there's a whole host of papers that are on my website. I think you're going to post some, you'll post a link to the website. I mean, there's all sorts of papers there and uh, I can try and make sure that 
that it's easy for people to access. But yes, some of them are a little bit technical, but a lot of them are, um, just lay out pretty, pretty easily what's going on. I mean, I think, I think of this as sort of applied common sense. When you talk to people, people come right to me and they say to me, yeah, that makes sense to me. I felt like I personally, I had a midlife crisis. I did. And so it, it seems to me that this is, this is sort of sensible things. And the people listening to it should say, does it make sense? And if it doesn't, that's fine. But if it does, and most people seem to think it does, then what you'd like to know is that there's work going on trying to understand this. And that's what I do. And that's what other people do. And increasingly, people in economics do it. Angus Deaton, as I talked about a minute ago, won the Nobel Prize in economics. Danny Kahneman, who's a, is a psychologist, he also won the Nobel Prize in economics. There's a whole slew of people, Dick Thaler, who talks about behavioral things. So economists are interested in well-being and how people behave and trying to understand patterns in the data. And that's what this is. It's not magic. It's about applied common sense. So you mentioned you had a midlife crisis. How old were you when it happened? 48. (laughs) (laughs) You know I'd say that. (laughs) 48 and three months. That's that's what the research, the research is indisputable. That's right. You start, I started from that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, thanks so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Great. My guest is David Branchflower. He is a labor economist who also researches and writes about human happiness. You can find more information about his work at our show notes at awim.is slash happiness curve. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you to on a list they went podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.